Our scripture reading from today uh, comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7, verses 6 and 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. We're continuing today, continuing today our season of Advent. The word Advent simply means coming or arrival. This is a season that Christians have celebrated for over a millennium, if you've ever attended a Christmas Eve service, you've participated in a service in the Advent calendar. During Advent, we teach our hearts to do something we don't do well, that is waiting. Advent is a season of waiting. As we remember the first coming of Christ, we remember His coming again. So we wait. Each week, we will remember one word that helps us prepare our hearts for the coming of Christ, hope, peace, joy, and love. And this is what the candles to my left represent. And these words have already been lit. Been lit. And yet there is one candle missing. The centered candle, Christ, who fulfills all these words perfectly. And yet... There is tension on the stage, isn't there? There is a candle that is off. And this candle is reminding us that Christmas is about waiting. But not only that, we know this candle will be lit. And this reminds us that Christmas is also about, about promises being fulfilled. This week, we turn to the word love. If your house was on fire and you had enough time to grab one thing, what would you grab? Perhaps you would grab family photos, your computer, your fishing rods, perhaps a piano. Now that would be hard, but I did say one thing, and that would be one thing. Well, I don't mean to make you feel bad, but if you th thought of those things, but you didn't think of your family first, you need to reevaluate your heart, okay? Perhaps you assume that your family would be able to save themselves. I asked Indy this question yesterday, and she answered without much time to think, well, I would take Elise. So forget Boaz and I, right? But Angel Baby, yes, she would carry Angel Baby. On her defense, she did say that Boaz and I can walk. So, yes, that is true. Well, this is an interesting question. It's an interesting exercise because it actually reveals 
where our treasure is, doesn't it? It actually reveals our treasure uh, possessions, right? Whether they are uh, things or people or whether, whether it, it's money or memories. It reveals which things occupy a place of priority in our hearts. Friends, at the end of history, there will be a great fire. And God will spare one thing from that great fire only. His people. Only the church will be spared the eternal fire of hell. Only those who in faith will draw near to Jesus will be saved. And what motivates God to spare His people from the eternal fires of hell? Well, there's only one answer. It's His love. It is love. God's love is on display in a special way as He chooses a people for Himself based not on their fitness, but based on His love for this people. We are this people. Today we turn to the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible, the last book of the Pentateuch. The book of Deuteronomy is the end of Israel's wandering in the desert. The word Deuteronomy is a composite word made up of two Greek words, delteros and nomos, which simply means second law. God is here renewing His law and His promises to His people. If you remember, Israel spent 400 years, more than 400 years, in Egypt, much of it as slaves. But God, with His mighty hand, delivered Israel from Egypt. Israel was weak. Egypt was strong. But Israel had the Lord on their side. After being delivered from slavery, Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness where they received the law of God and where they enter into a covenant with God. But now it's time for Israel to enter the promised land. So God, in the book of Deuteronomy, renews His covenant, His promises with his people. Two words help us understand the book of Deuteronomy well. Both these words are in the famous Shema Israel prayer in chapter 6. The words are listen and love. Listen to God's instruction. By the way, that's what Torah means. Torah is better translated as instruction rather than law. Listen to God's instruction, which implies obedience to God. In, in other words, uh, listen and obey. And love God, which implies full devotion to God. And, and if Israel would do these two things, Israel would experience prosperity, security, 
in the land. But how could Israel abide by these two great expectations? Listen, obey, love, be devoted. Full obedience and full devotion. Israel could love God because God loved Israel first. And this is what God is saying in our passage today. God declares His love for Israel. And He says, based on my love for you, listen and love. God is able to require love from His people because God loves His people first. God's love is transforming, motivating, and inspiring love that teaches His people to listen to Him and love Him in response. Now, this has great relevance, right, for a new covenant community like us. God calls us today to do the same. Listen and love. And the principles of God's word, toward, uh, of God's love towards His people is true regardless of where in the covenantal structure of the Bible we may find ourselves, whether we're in the Old Covenant or whether we are in the New Covenant. As a matter of fact, Peter, the apostle, instructs the church to live as elect exiles by applying this very passage from Deuteronomy to the new covenant community, to the church. Listen to, just listen to the echoes of Deuteronomy in 1 Peter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So this passage has incredible, God's declaration of love for Israel has incredible relevance for us today as we consider the love of God for us, His people, and how this love should impact the way we live our lives. So today as we turn to our text, we'll consider three words that are indicative of the way God's love transforms us. So we'll consider first devotion, then we'll consider distinction, and finally we'll consider delivery. So let's turn first to the word devotion. In verse 6, Moses speaking from God as a prophet to his people, says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. There's a connection here that Moses wants to draw between the love of God and the holiness of the people. Love and holiness go together. Perhaps you never thought of this, but God is saying that the people he loves is a holy people. But how is the word holy being used here? When we think of holiness, we think of God, don't we? God is holy. 
That means he is completely set apart. That's the first destination that often comes to our mind. That means God is sinless. That is a definition for the word holy. But the word holy is not being applied to God here. The word holy is being applied to the people. And this concept of sinlessness cannot be applied to Israel, can it? As a matter of fact, Israel's 40 years in the desert were filled with grumbling and unbelief. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews describes the wilderness generation of Israel. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt left by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, those whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So clearly holiness is not sinlessness, because if it was, Israel would not qualify. Notice that the verb here in verse 6 is an indicative verb. Last week we talked about verbs that are commandments, right? Imperative verbs. They, they're called imperatives because, because they come to us with the power of an emperor. When the emperor says we must do something, that is law. Today, however, our verb is indicative. Not a commandment, but a description. Moses is saying to Israel, Israel, you are holy. He's not saying you must be holy. Although that is true as well, this is not what he's emphasizing today. He's emphasizing Israel, you are holy. So we see here that the word holiness is a declaration. It's a declaration. God himself declares a people holy. In other words, holiness is coming to Israel here as a gift. God gives the gift of holiness to his people. Holiness belongs to God, and yet he shares it with us. Peter says the same thing is true of us, doesn't he? In the passage that we just read, he says, you are a holy nation. Do you hear the declaration here? Not a commandment. Declaring us to be holy. Friends, holiness is not something we achieve. Although we are called to be holy. It is something we receive. Holiness is not based on works, but based on the gift of grace that God gives. But not only that, holiness also has a direction. Holiness also has a direction. Did you see in verse 6 where it says, Holiness must be geared towards someone. You are to be holy to the Lord your God. The holiness of God is an invitation that God gives us 
so that we can direct our lives towards Him. Moses steps on holy ground in Exodus 3. But God's holiness does not command him to go away from God, but instead God instructs him to ceremonially cleanse himself by removing his sandals and approach him. Do you see the invitation of holiness? When the prophet Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on his throne in Isaiah 6, he ceremonially, he ceremonially cleanses the prophet by touching his lips with a piece of coal. And then he says, go serve me. Holiness is an invitation. Friends, it is possible for us to be holy if we receive the gift of holiness by faith in Christ. But holiness is also a sign of devotion. In other words, God is saying that His people's only allegiance must be to Himself. God calls us to Himself, but we could never approach Him if we were not holy. But just as God provides a way for holiness for Moses and Isaiah, God provides the means for us to be holy and devote our lives to Him. He purifies us through the sacrifice of Christ and calls us to be devoted. He calls us to dedicate our lives to Him. And how far should our devotion to God go? Listen to Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do, that's how far it should go. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. The invitation that God issues to His holiness is an invitation for us to forsake our lives, forsake our goals, forsake our pleasures, and live for Him. It is an invitation for us to ask the question, what will bring God's most glory? And allow that question to dictate what we do every moment of our lives. This must be the most dominant question in our minds for every decision we make. From the time we wake up to the time we go to sleep. From whether or not I should get married or whether or not I should go to college. From how I should pursue a career. From which church should I join? The pressing question in our hearts must always be, what will amount to God's greater glory? Our devotion is revealed by the inclinations of our hearts. We know what we are devoted to by the passions that emerge from within us, don't we? What consumes our thoughts, what fills up our hearts, minds, schedules, calendars, what drains our bank accounts. And friends, many things will compete for the devotion of our hearts, but we are to constantly fight the fight for God's glory. So friend, are you living a holy life today? A life that is devoted to God? Is that reflected 
in how you organize your day? Is that reflected in how you conduct your relationships? Are you making decisions in life according to what brings God most glory? Or are you seeking after power, pleasure, possessions, prestige? Husbands, are you loving your wives in a way that brings glory to God? Do you conduct your family with the glory of God in mind? If you're single, are you using your time in a God-honoring way? Do you use your free time to serve and honor God? If you're suffering, if you're ill, have you considered how you can bring glory to God through your weakness and suffering? Children, Christmas is approaching, and I know you know that. You will likely get gifts, and that's great. Praise God for that. But can I encourage you to keep two things in mind as you think about Christmas and you think about gifts? If you get what you want, can I encourage you not to love it so much that you allow that gift to consume your heart, to consume your time? Can, you, can I encourage you not to love it so much that if you are deprived of that gift, you get mad and you get frustrated? If you don't get what you want, can I encourage you not to be upset, upset about it, but instead to look for ways to be happy when, our, when your heart perhaps is not fully satisfied with the gifts. Be thankful that someone thought of you. Be thankful that someone gave you something. If you find yourself struggling with these things, can I just encourage you to talk to your parents about it? And, and let your parents help you know how to direct your heart towards the glory of God rather than your own interests. Friends, let's turn now to the, to the word distinction. Distinction. God uses some special words for Israel in verse 6. He calls them His chosen people. His treasured possession. This is the doctrine of election. The election of Israel is evidence that God's redemptive plan under the Mosaic Covenant, in that covenant Israel occupied a place of distinction among all other people. And this choosing is to make Israel God's treasure possession. In other words, in election, God shows His special love towards His people. Did you see in verse 6? Israel is treasured and chosen out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. He is drawing a distinction between God's people and those who are not God's people. He is saying, I am showing my favor to these people in a way that I am not showing favor to anyone else. That is as clear as day. Now, I want to say God's love is complex. It is true that God loves the world. 
He makes his gospel available for everyone and anyone to respond. The gospel does not discriminate anyone in any way. He sustains the universe for everyone to enjoy. The rain falls on the good and on the wicked. He gave his son out of an abundance of love for the world. But there is a a love that God places on Israel and a love that God places on you who is in Christ that makes you distinct, that makes you special. Friends, God chooses those whom he loves so that they can be his treasure possession. Election is a demonstration of love. And if we downplay the doctrine of election, we rob God's love of its glory. When we make election say what God does not say, anything other than God chooses the wicked, the sinner, the vile, in order to transform them into a holy nation, we water down the powerful love God bestows on his people. When God chooses His people in Christ, New Testament authors celebrate that and praise God for that. So we too must praise God when we see this doctrine in the Bible. Here's why. If God did not choose us, we would never choose Him. If God would not quicken our hearts that were dead in trespasses and sins, Friends, we would never come to God. It is His mercy that saves us. It is His mercy that enables us to respond in love. Listen to Paul's word of praise in Ephesians 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a word of praise. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Our value comes not from our great internal natural fortitude. Our value comes from the fact that God loves us and He bestows that love on us. And when He did that, we did not deserve that love. Indy and I, just celebrated 17 years of marriage yesterday. These have been sweet years. We have been truly blessed. 17 years ago, I chose her. Now, you're probably not surprised at the fact that I chose her. You might be surprised at the fact that she chose me back. But for the sake of argument, come along with me, okay? Why did I choose her because I loved her. I chose Indy to be my wife because I loved her in a way that I did not love any other woman on earth. Now imagine how fickle my love would be if I said, I love my wife, but I love all other women on earth just the same. What is special about that love? Nothing is special about the love. The fact that my wife is a special object for my covenantal love makes her, to me, more special than all other women on earth. Ladies, I love you in Christ. 
but I love my wife more. And you know what? You should be happy that that is true of your pastor. But that is true also of God. God loves His people in a special way. He chooses those who are His and makes them distinct from the rest of the world by placing His love on them. There is an honor that God receives when we celebrate such love that is right, that He is due. Why? Because we're utterly unworthy of His love. Notice what God says in verse seven, what Moses says from God in verse 7. It was not because you were more in number that than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. What the Lord is saying here is that He chooses to set His love not on those who have value in and of themselves, but on those who have no value. The number of people indicated, the number of the people indicated the strength of a people. Few people indicate a people who is weak and vulnerable, a people who had no hope of standing against opposition and enemies, a people who ultimately has nothing to offer God in return for His love, and yet they're God's greatest treasure. So, what is the requirement for anyone to receive the love of God? The requirement is weakness. The requirement is that we do not meet the requirement. The requirement is that for us to receive the love of God, we must recognize our weakness, our bondage, our slavery to sin. Because... The God who loves us is also the God who redeems us, our Deliverer. So let us turn to the word delivery. Let me bring your attention now primarily to verse 8. There are a few things that I want, that I want to highlight in this verse. First, note, first notice that verse 8 begins with the word but. Okay? Why is this important? Because Moses is about to tell Israel why God chose them. He has told them that God has chosen them, but why? And he gives them two reasons. First, his love, and second, his oath. So again, he affirms his love for Israel, but he adds something. His oath. An oath is a covenant. An oath is a promise. God's love rests on his promises. And God has a perfect track record of keeping His promises. God's love is not like our love that is temperamental. Right? Our, our love is often reactive. And we use the word love for things that are great. I love my wife. I love my family. But we also love things like ice cream and popcorn. God's love is not fickle like ours. God's love is based on His character. And God is faithful. Therefore, His love is trustworthy. You may have heard it said, 
that we should study history so we can learn from our mistakes in the past and not repeat them in the future. There is value in that. But this is not of the, at the heart of studying history for the Christian. The Christian studies history in order to see God's faithfulness in the past. Praise Him for His faithfulness in the present. And trust Him for His faithfulness in the future. This is what God is doing here. He is reminding His people of His past faithfulness in history. Did I not redeem you out of captivity, Israel? Did I not redeem you out of Egypt? Was I not faithful? Did I not display my love to you in power? Were you not the weakest? Was Egypt not the strongest? And yet, I chose you. I delivered you. I redeemed you. I loved you. Friends, God's faithfulness has been on display over and over again before our eyes in history. He redeems a weak people out of the claws of a terrible enemy. He did that in the past, and He still does that today. Just as God once delivered Israel from the enemy without, that is Egypt, God today delivers us from the enemy within, sin. Just as Israel experienced an exodus from oppression, we too experience an exodus from the oppression of sin. Israel was enslaved by Egypt, but we by nature are enslaved by sin. God redeemed Israel out of their captivity to a wicked and oppressive people, but our captor is much closer and it is much more powerful. Just as Israel depended on a strong and mighty God, we too depend on a strong and mighty God. Now listen to this passage in Colossians with echoes, echoes of Exodus. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. The word redemption simply means to buy out of slavery. But our slavery is to sin. Friends, if you're not a Christian, and you're here with us today, we're very glad you're here. Perhaps you don't sense that you are in any way enslaved. But this is exactly what God Himself says of you. You're enslaved by a captor that has blinded you. He gives you the impression of freedom while He drains the life out of you. He leads you on a path of deception as you reject the promises of God, the promises that God makes of freedom and eternal life. But God's love is not just for the weak. God's love is also for the rebellious. God's love is for those who reject Him also. So maybe God is opening your eyes today so that you can realize that you have been enslaved by your own nature. 
The good news is that God does not love those who out of the goodness of their hearts love Him first. He loves those who recognize their slavery and bondage to sin and run to His love for hope. God loves those who realize that they have nothing to offer and can only run to God for hope. American theologian Jonathan Edwards once said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. It is true, God does not call us to Himself because of our fitness. He calls us to Himself because we're utterly unfit for eternal life. So friend, this is the great hope God is offering you today. You already qualify to receive the love of God as long as you recognize that you have to offer nothing except for your sins in exchange for Christ's righteousness. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That is all of us before Christ. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, this is at the heart of the message of the gospel. God loves us when we're utterly unlovable. This is at the heart of the message of Christmas. Our sin made it necessary for Christ to come. Our sin condemned us to eternal death apart from God, under the judgment of God. But God came down at Christmas. God took on flesh in the person of Christ. And unlike us, Christ lived in perfect righteousness. Christ, our God and our brother, was in every way like us and yet without sin. So He's offered His life as our ransom. He offered His life to deliver us from the power of sin and death. John 15 Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Christ came down to die for us. The baby in a manger came to give his life. Christ came down to die the death we should have died. In Christ's life, our righteousness was accomplished, and in his sacrifice, our sins were Forgiven. Friend, the offer that Christ makes to you this Christmas is that if you believe that He came to die for your sins, His perfect obedience will be accredited to you and your sins will be accredited to Him. You will have assurance of eternal life, assurance that God is for you, and you will have assurance of the salvation God promises. At Christmas, let us remember this. Christ came so that we may know love. The infinite love of God. Christ came 
so that we could be counted as God's treasured possession. Oh, to be known by God and to be loved by God. This is the promise of Christmas. This is the promise of delivery. This is the promise God makes to His people. And this is the offer that God makes to you today. So, have you received Christ today? Would you pray with me?